0: Shane Sigsby graduated from Notre Dame in 2007 with a degree in finance. He became a derivatives trader right out of school, but lost his job in the financial crisis in 2009. He then left to pursue a career in gambling, starting the venture I'm a Whale Staking in 2010, which he still runs to this day. In 2017 he and his wife Rachel began investing in real estate in southern Alabama, focusing on the burr method using short-term rentals. They're currently sitting on 35 doors with a goal of reaching 100 doors.
1: In this episode we talked to Shane and Rachel about beginning their journey to real estate investing in 2017, how they scaled their portfolio from 1 to 35 doors, why they have converted most of their properties to short-term rentals, and tips and tricks on rehabbing and furnishing a short-term rental. I'm Brittany. And I'm Neil. And this is The Road to Family Freedom.
0: Before we get to this week's show, we'd like to make you aware of something. We are self-storage investors. We buy existing self-storage facilities and vacant buildings that can be converted to self-storage in the Sunbelt. We buy them with cash and some with loans, and we use private lenders who become equity partners in our deals. These equity partners share in the cash flow and the profits when we sell. When we find a deal that we are considering, we call the equity partners and offer them a share of the ownership secured by the property. So if you've ever driven by a self-storage facility and thought, I wonder who owns those things, and you have any interest in learning more about the storage business, we'd love to chat with you. Head on over to RoadToFamilyFreedom.com slash storage. That's RoadToFamilyFreedom.com slash S-T-O-R-A-G-E and set up a time to chat. We look forward to speaking with you.
1: All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family
2: freedom.
0: Well, Shane and Rachel Sigsby, welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's nice to see you again, Shane. This is our second time recording. We had a uh, technical fault that caused our first interview to go poof. (laughs) So I'm I'm glad to get you back. And, And a bonus is we get to have Rachel and Brittany on the show this time. So.
3: Nice. Absolutely, I got done with that interview, and I told Rachel. I went, and gave her a high five, and said, "Best podcast ever." Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so we'll, so yeah. we got something to live up to. Then.
1: Yeah, <laughs> Neil. Once Neil figured out that like it was gone, he was like depressed for half the day. <laughs> he was right. really sad. I was like, "There's nothing you can do." We'll just yeah. Yeah. it sucks though.
0: Yeah. So before we dig into your real estate endeavors, I have to hear how you went from. An unemployed finance guy to professional gambler during the Great Recession.
3: Yeah, so graduated in 2007 with a finance degree and then went into the finance world soon after as a trader. And then like you uh, referred to, I lost my job in 09 and I was playing poker at the time just as a hobby or I guess a side hustle. And so Rachel and I were dating at the time and I convinced her, I said, Hey, you know, let's take a year off from, from work. She was already working from home. So it wasn't her taking time off, but I said, let's take a, a year off from me working in the finance world and let's go travel around. I want to go travel to the, the poker circuit. You know, and I was like, I've always wanted to travel. I was like, let's go travel to all the cool places that the the poker tournaments are going on, the Monte Carlo, and uh, Melbourne, Australia, and, and uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, some of, some of the places that the tournaments were going on. And. So we did that for about a year and uh, and along the way, I, I got decent at a, at a business that wasn't actually playing poker, but it was actually on the finance side of poker and backing poker players and, and never went back to the, I guess, the real world of finance ever since.
0: For people who don't understand, because I now do understand it, we've already interviewed about this, but can you explain to people what backing backing a poker player involves?
3: Yeah, so I didn't understand it either. And when I was out on the circuit, I would meet people and they'd refer to their backer and I asked the same question. I'm like, what's a backer? Like, how does it work? You know, and they'd be like, Oh, you know, this guy puts up money, you know, for me to play in these tournaments, and you know, we split the profits 50-50. But if I lose and I go play in another tournament, well, I gotta make back the losses of the previous tournament, and that's called makeup. I gotta make back the losses of the previous tournament, and then we split the net of the two tournaments 50-50 and you know the makeup just keeps uh, accruing until you know you get into the black you know for all the tournaments combined and when i was meeting these people and they were referring to their backers i'd always be like well who's your backer you know and they'd be like oh it's my dad or you know it's a friend of mine or it's my brother you know the answer was never oh this company you know xyz backing company you know backs me so back in 2010 that was kind of my idea was i was like you know why couldn't you do this like actually professionally make a business of it provide coaching and management as well as the capital to poker players. And obviously I started out really small with just a couple of guys and and got lucky in the beginning with some successful guys and and grew that.
0: It's almost in a way, the way I sort of compare it is almost like somebody who's not a hard money lender, but someone who's a JV lender on with a house flipper.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Same exact.
0: Well, you obviously want to find people who are talented and not knuckleheads are going to lose your capital.
3: And I don't have a hundred percent success rate on that, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: true. So, how did you convince your wife that, hey, you know, I just lost my job? Let's let's you know, let's just take off for a year, and I'm going to go just gamble for a living for a year.
2: Yeah, it took some convincing for sure. And um,
3: we were young too. I mean, I think when you're 24, it's a lot yeah. easier uh, convincing than uh, if we were where we are today in life yeah. with kids and. It is
2: what we were actually just dating at the time. and I was a freelance editor for a company back in Birmingham, Alabama, and they had, it was a, a global corporation that I worked for. And so we were I was able to go around the world to visit their different offices while he was playing, like in the same cities he was playing poker, fortunately. And so when we set up like what I was gonna be doing on the road and what he was gonna be doing on the road, it, it made a lot of sense to do it that way. So uh, it it, it kind of like all the cars fell, into, yeah, literally all the cars fell into place and uh, we were able to go and um and do this really amazing trip. Uh, and it was for about 18 months. And at first I was just like nervous because, you know, I'm I'm not super independent financially and uh, yeah, but he made it work. And I, I just trusted him to to be able to make the money and make the right decisions.
0: So I would say your risk tolerance is a little higher than the average person.
3: Definitely.
2: Both of us for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to be on the same page. Yeah.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And in, 2017 you started investing in real estate. Can you talk to me a little about where that where that light bulb went off and how that happened?
3: Yeah, so Rachel's from South Mobile County and we spent a lot of time down there. Basically, we spent every summer down there with her family and we we built a, a small little personal house down there in uh 2014. And as we were spending the summers down there, I just started looking at real estate, you know, and started, you know, driving by and seeing for sale signs and just Curious, like, you know, how much does a house cost here? You know, and I'd see a house, you know, pop up for sale that was in not that bad of shape for $40,000. And I'm like, you know, like, geez, like, how much does it rent for? You know, and then, you know, started doing some research and kind of found bigger pockets. Bigger pockets was, I guess, like my big light bulb moment and dove, you know, into the podcast. And I think I've like listened to pretty much every bigger pockets podcast. And you know, just learned a lot from that, and then got on the forums and started learning from that, and started playing around with the Bigger Pockets rental calculator, and started plugging in numbers of, you know, hey, this house is going to cost forty thousand. I need to rehab it for ten thousand. It's going to rent out for eight fifty a month. You know, what does that look like? You know, from a cash flow perspective, and then started learning about the Burr method. I'm still all about the Burr method, where I was buying all the all the cheap properties in cash, rehabbing them in cash, and then you know, refining out. So yeah, I guess that's kind of how it happened. But we do all of our investing in uh, South Mobile County. So even though we're full-time residents of Las Vegas, we actually uh, invest out of the state.
2: Right. And my family has rental properties, has always had rental properties in my hometown. So I think uh, you're able just to kind of ask some questions about how it works um, when he first got interested in it. And if they don't do it on a large scale by any means. It's just pretty small structured. So Shane kind of took that idea and ran with it because Grand Bay is a really good opportunity when it comes to the prices of homes and the rental market
3: as well.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about that first, the first property that you bought there?
3: Yeah. So it was one of the ones that I drove by and the guy had a, you know, for sale by owner sign in his front yard. Which one is that? Highway
2: 188. Yeah, yeah. One of the so, original uh, Grand Bay homes that's probably built in the 40s, 50s. Yeah. So 10. it's
3: cinder block construction. Mm-hmm. It's a three one, about 1200 square feet. So, the guy, I think he wanted like 50,000 for it or so. And, you know, I had ran all my numbers. I I can like see looking back on it how green I was now about how much I thought the rehab was going to cost and everything else. But for whatever reason, and I don't remember exactly why, but I thought my like max number was 38.5, I could pay for it. So, uh, the guy owned like a local garage, uh, like machine shop in town and uh, i told him i was like hey i'm going to come by you know and talk to you and, and i went by and he's like you know i've owned this house for 40 years you know just i keep it as a rental but i really only rent it to family and i'm renting it for way under market rent and i just really think that i'd be better off selling it and, you know i said hey you know i'm not going to go pay the 50,000 but i can pay 38,500 and you know all cash no inspection could close in 7 days and he said, uh, you know, I think that's just a bit too low. And I said, and I, I wrote it down on a piece of paper. And I said, hey, look, here's my number. You know, my name's Shane. So my wife's from Grand Bay. You know, I, I, he knew uh, Rachel's dad. Um, and I said, you know, if you ever change your mind, like, give me a call. And uh, you know, again, for the next couple of weeks, just kept going through the process of running deals. And about two weeks later, he called me and he's like, hey, he's like, you know, he's like, you'll still do the thirty-eight point five. He's like, I'll, uh, I'll do it. And I was like, okay.
0: Well, what, what you did there that I love, which is you, you, you basically left the guy with a number, mm-hmm. you know, because a lot of them will sit there and, you know, you get a lot of tire kickers who are out there, you know, trying to get people to bite on, on whatever price they're looking for. And once they sort of get to the point where they realize that they're not going to get that price, that, you know, a lot of times they're just going to go off on, off of rapport, somebody who they like and who got closest to the price they were looking for. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of what you found? Cause now you've scaled to what, how many doors are you at right now?
3: We have 35 doors. Now we have 31 fully rehabbed and we have four that we're in the process of rehabbing right now.
0: All right. So, and you have, have you done pretty much all of them kind of using the bird method?
3: Yeah, we've, we have four or five deals that we've left in cash that I've actually been thinking about it here lately. I think I'm going to complete the bird process on them, but You know, and then we've got actually another, now that I'm thinking about, we've got another four or five that we've done owner financing on. So I guess probably about 25 or 27, we've done the Burr method on, and then the other eight, we've either left in cash or done owner financing with.
0: You're now, you're getting probably pretty good at negotiating with potential sellers. What would you say, how do you approach that? You know, when you're, you know, you've got somebody who, are you marketing directly or you're going off of the MLS? First of all, that's my first question.
3: Oh. All MLS. Um, We also are looking at the auction websites. We have a guy that goes to the courthouse uh, and so we'll bid on stuff at the courthouse. I still look at Facebook and Craigslist. It hasn't been very fruitful for me, but I still look at it probably once a week. But I'd say 75% of our deals are from MLS, 15% are from a wholesaler and 10% are at auction.
0: Gotcha. Once you make contact with the seller, how is that negotiation starting? At a high level, I'm not expecting you to give us a uh, a master course in negotiation here, but at a high level, how does that conversation go?
3: Well, I think like the owner finance deals are really where the negotiation there's like an art to it, uh, and with the owner finance deals, I really try to negotiate terms more than price. I find sellers get fixated on the price, where like you can really take advantage of really good terms, specifically interest rate and how long they'll carry the note for. So I try to get super low interest rates, and then I turn it all into a present value function. For example, like let's say you're negotiating on a six hundred thousand dollars house, and you're able to negotiate. I've never been able to do this, but it's a fictitious example, you know. But you're able to negotiate, you know, principal only, and you can get the the owner to carry the note for thirty years. You know, I mean, like your present value is like fifty percent off. You know, your present value of that house at like current interest rates is like a three hundred thousand dollars present value, like compared to if you had gone to the owner and been like, Hey, I'll offer you 300,000. I know you're asking 600,000. They're going to tell you to get lost, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I think like specifically with owner financing, I'm pretty aggressive about the terms. And then also like making it look to them that like, look, I'm willing to pay your full asking price, but here's what I need in return on a traditional deal where I'm buying cash. I try to get pretty aggressive with my offers because I also know that I'm the only cash buyer. You know, I can close in seven days. I have no. Appraisal, no inspection, contingencies, nothing like that. So I know that, like, yeah, they may be getting full price offers, but the offers that they're getting are contingent on financing and contingent on inspections and everything else. Whereas, like, I know I can get aggressive on my offer and they're going to be tempted to take my offer, even if it's less than other people's.
0: So you're typically, you know, if you're going, if you're going to try and go low on price, you're going to basically offer them cash, quick close, no inspection, no appraisal, things like that. They're stuck on price then you're going to come at them with terms.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And we're actively looking for properties that need extensive rehab too. Like we're not, we're not buying uh, turnkey properties.
2: No, especially for the price that we're, we're looking at. Those don't exist anywhere. I don't think so.
3: Yeah. So a lot of the properties we're looking at, they wouldn't qualify for financing anyways.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Gotcha. Which is nice because it really limits, you know, the buyer pool that's, you know, that's looking at that property. Yes, yeah, Gotcha.
1: Um, so you're doing this long distance, you do have family there, but how have you put together a team to have on the ground there? Or do you travel there
3: regularly? So one of the really nice things is Rachel's dad's a contractor, a uh, licensed contractor. So he's able to pull the permits for us and he's able to do most of the stuff for the properties. We have another family member uh, who is the cousin of my brother-in-law, who is also a contractor and can do basically everything that my father-in-law can Mm -hmm. um and then my father-in-law he does all the plumbing he does
2: a lot of the design work so um for example we had a property on Dauphin Island our first property when we went through the rehab we had to rehab it as an island home and not just a standard rental like we do in Grand Bay Um, and so he was really key when it came to making the actual the the design decisions like putting in the shiplap and doing certain things that you know, just kind of creates a different experience for guests. And so we're we're actually working on uh, another project with him right now. And there's so many things that have to be done just to even get it to a vacation rental versus a regular rental. Mm -hmm. We can get that too. But um, yeah, he's, he's really great when it comes to, he and I working together when it with the design on that. And so he does, yeah, kind of those two things. Mainly.
3: Yeah. And then Shannon, the other guy, he's more like he's doing all of the sheetrock and the framing and the floors and uh, the like painting the, and stuff. The but manual manual labor yeah. The yeah. thing that Shannon's really good at is he's really good at putting together a crew, you know? So like he's put together a seven, eight man crew that, you know, I didn't have anything to do with hiring. So it's kind of like we're managing like the two top level guys and then they're like responsible for their guys below them but I don't deal with their guys. I just deal with, you know, the two main, uh, yeah. effectively GCs. Mm-hmm. Nice. Gotcha.
1: So that's with your like rehab for finding and acquiring properties. You said, you know, you're doing MLS mostly. Um, so are you con- like, um, in contact with the, The sellers mostly from a distance. I mean, right now, probably mostly. We
3: use we use two main realtors down there. Um, So unless it's an owner finance deal, we generally will take everything through the realtors. And the reason why I like doing that, we we could go direct to the sellers or go uh, direct to their agents, but I like using our realtors because they also are finding us off market deals. So it's like you know, it's kind of like we scratch their back, they scratch ours. Mm So I like going that route with owner financing. I like to go direct to the the seller um, and just kind of like cut out the realtors because generally they're they're not using a realtor on their end anyways, and it helps us with negotiation if we come to them without a realtor. But on like the MLS deals that aren't owner financing, we're going in with our own uh, two realtors.
2: And a lot of times we, since we don't live there, uh, we and to answer your question, we do travel uh, every few months. We'll go down there. Sometimes we're there for two months straight. So a lot of the properties that. We do buy happen in those two months, and then the ones that happen when we're not there, uh, we'll either just send the realtor or just buy it sight unseen. Sometimes just because it's a good deal, and we see the value of the land, and that's basically what we take into consideration.
3: Yeah, we, we bought a house last week that was sight unseen. We paid twenty two thousand for it, and it's like one of those deals where like, I mean, how bad could it be, right? You know, <laughs>
1: could probably turn around. What can we
3: find that wouldn't make it a good deal? Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> A sinkhole underneath it. I don't know. know.
1: (laughs) Don't curse them. I know.
0: Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I take it back. So I just want to, uh, really quick, so we understand because this is part of one of the things that we really focus on. That first property you bought, you bought it for the purchase price was thirty eight five, and then how much rehab did you have to put into it? Do you recall?
3: We ended up in it all in for fifty. So we spent eleven five on the rehab. Gotcha.
0: That's actually that's not bad. And then uh do you recall what it appraised for after that?
3: Yeah, it appraised for ninety thousand because they gave me seventy five percent on that. So they gave me like sixty seven five minus closing costs. I think I got like sixty six back out of it.
0: Yeah. No, that's a perfect burr. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah,
3: and it rents for eight seventy five a month. My monthly note on it is like three twenty three a month. Obviously, we've got some reserves for repairs and maintenance and capex and whatnot, but it um, has been a good house. Yeah, it's been a great it's been a great house.
1: Yeah. yeah. So that house is a more of a long-term rental?
3: It is. Yeah.
1: Okay. So you, did you start with mostly long-term rentals and then
3: you yeah, kind of. We started with All long-term rentals. We actually got into the Airbnbs because we own this eight unit apartment complex um, in this town, Grand Bay, which is where we, we, by most of our properties, which is where Rachel's from. And we were having trouble collecting rent just specifically in this eight unit apartment complex, not with our single families. Um, and so my idea was, I was like, man, I was like, you know what, let's try putting a couple of these on Airbnb, you know, I read about it, it'd be cheap to furnish it, It's a little 800 square foot uh, apartment. I said, let's put two on Airbnb and let's just compare, you know, like we'll be able to compare apples to apples because it's the same exact units, you know, we'll know exactly like how Airbnb does versus the long-term's do. And even though Grand Bay has no tourism about it or anything, it's incredible what our occupancy rates have been at that property. And so we were net on net after paying utilities and all the extra costs that you incur, cleaning fees, everything with Airbnbs. We were net on net making about 40% more on those 2 units that we were using as Airbnbs compared to our long terms. So ever since then, we've really been proactive about going the Airbnb route with other properties. And then we've also expanded into some of the beach towns where just Airbnb is the only thing that makes sense. You would never run it out long-term. And I think right now, like we're all Airbnb, like we're trying to convert our long-terms into Airbnbs and then the properties we're looking to buy, we're only looking at Airbnb-able properties.
2: Yeah. And I think why that they do well in Grand Bay, which is a non-vacation town is because their Grand Bay is kind of in a sweet spot there's no hotels anywhere near there for probably 20 miles either way. So, you know, people coming to the beach, coming through the coast, wanting to go to the beach without paying the price, we have that access for them, as well as we have uh, shipyards down there. So, Chevron Oil Refinery and also the you know, shipyarding Shipyard. Uh, so, like, they, those two big corporations bring in a ton of part time workers. Right, part time workers. Yeah looking to stay anywhere from like two weeks to you know six months and again there's no hotels around the town that that is in is not as desirable as green bay and so they come a little bit more east to find something that they can have a family in so yeah that's kind of a dive into the rough i would say when it comes to having an airbnb rental in a very small town that literally offers nothing but you know (laughs) a pass through town to bigger uh a bigger city of mobile
1: Uh, i think that's something that sometimes people when they when they think about short-term investment, they really concentrate on those vacation markets and, and it really doesn't have to be that, you know, we have two properties in Fayetteville, North Carolina, that we've talked about making short-term rentals because there's a base there. And, you know, so people come and visit or they'll have other, you know, transient sort of visitors for the base that need to be there for only a little bit of time, but can't stay on the base or don't want to for whatever reason. So, it doesn't have to be like fun vacation. It can right. it can be other right. things.
2: I think those are more fun to renovate and to decorate, in my opinion, because there's so much more that goes into it. The ones that we use that we have in Grand Bay, us, if we had a team down there, one of the people that's very key when it comes to decorating and installing the homes and furnishing them, uh, we have an assistant who's actually one of our contractor's daughters, so it's really neat. They can work together to get a, a property finished, and she can do the install of the furniture. So. It's something that I can't do because we do have so many properties. We're turning, we're currently turning over four properties into Airbnb's all at one time, Um, and that's in ending a rehab, ending maintenance on them, and then moving into the furnishing stage. Well, since I don't live there, and it's very hard for one person to do at the same time, we hired her to kind of oversee that process because she does have that kind of background and eye when it comes to um, construction and that kind of thing. So yeah, having somebody to assist with that is pretty key when you don't live in that area because you don't want to be the one landing and going straight to, you know, Target and Costco and like, get, like it's literally like takes two weeks to get the whole thing done. So it's, it's definitely a way, it's something that we have learned to do a little bit more efficiently having help.
0: You've got boots on the ground as far as acquisition. You've got boots on the ground as far as construction and maintenance and you've got boots on the ground as far as furnishing. Who's doing the management?
3: So for the long-term properties, we use a, a local manager that we've used since day one uh, that we've been really happy with. And then uh, for the short-term rentals, we interviewed uh, some of the super hosts down there. So basically, we went on to Airbnb and just figured out three super hosts in the area. And I went and sat down and had a coffee with those three. Got a really good feeling from uh, one uh, lady. And we've been using her as our, I guess, co-host. They call it. Uh, but she already had Superhost status for all the Airbnbs. And then the the girl that is helping us with the furnishing. We're also now that we've grown to, I think we have uh, eighteen Airbnbs now. Uh, now that we're kind of reaching that like critical point where it's becoming a little bit too much just for one person to handle all. She's also helping out with you know the communicating with guests, scheduling the cleanings, and everything that goes in with that.
0: So you had been dealing with the communication with the guests? No,
3: no. This lady, Karen, was doing it all. We got her right away. Yeah, yeah. For right from the the very first one. But it gets to a point where one person can't handle so many Airbnbs, which were I I kind of had that point figured out to be about 20 is where you get to the point where one person can't handle it. And so we've just recently brought on um, our assistant, Beth, to help her out just Hey, like if something comes in late at night and she's not around to message a guest, I mean, it's a 24-7 thing. You don't know when a guest, you know, some of these guests, they're not checking in till 2 a.m., you know, and they always have the same questions, you know, like what's the yeah. Wi-Fi password? It's like it's in your guidebook. It's in your check-in instructions, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, you have to answer it. Uh, and that's so. something
2: that, you know, clearly we can't do because we're on a different, different part of the country. And yeah. Yeah. even even having that many, like you said, for one person and especially like as owners, there's some of the other things that we have to do in our real estate business that you really need one person that that's their sole job and that yeah. that is what they are good at and Karen and Beth I think that will be really
3: good at. yeah this this is Karen our, our yeah. head Airbnb manager this is all she does for a living like she doesn't it's not like this isn't a side job for or yeah. anything this is what she does
2: because that's the most important thing in the Airbnbs is the relationship you have with the host because mm-hmm. there are that go wrong every hour of the day when it comes with Airbnb. So mm-hmm. uh, you need to have some, just like at a hotel, you have to have somebody on call all the time to make sure that those questions are answered and guests are as comfortable as possible. Otherwise you will get, start getting those negative reviews. And that's definitely not what we want. For our company. Yeah. yeah, no, I can imagine if you
1: had somebody who came in just like sort of late ish in the evening, that's three yeah. hours ahead. Uh, you know, right. like your timing yes. can be a little weird and,
0: have you ever used a web service called Smarter BNB? No. Tell me about it. So this is magical. Um
1: might help your host. Yeah. This Smarter, my
0: life. Yeah. Smarter BNB is a um a service where you can basically it it automates a lot of the the basic communication. Like it mm-hmm. automates, you know, when they book it, it sends them automatically sends them an email and says, Hey, thanks for booking, you know, such and such on Dolphin Island. Your check-in dates are this and this, blah, blah, blah. You know, we'll send you check-in instructions closer to your date. Two days before they check-in, it sends them a reminder. Hey, you know, we're looking forward to hosting you at such and such property. Here are the check-in instructions, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then the day after they check-in, sends them another communication saying, hey, just checking in, making sure everything's okay. Let us know if you need anything. Day before checkout, uh, hey, just a reminder, your checkout's tomorrow. Here are the checkout procedures. Let us know if you have any questions. Day after they leave, hey, thanks for, you know, thanks for staying with us. We loved having you. Please let us know if there was any any sort of issue. Here's a reminder to rate us, blah, blah, blah. It also, you can set up auto responders. It starts to learn. Like if somebody goes, hey, how far are you, f-? if they're always asking, hey, how, how far are you from the beach? Mm-hmm. You can have it. automatically. It will. It will say. It will realize. Hey, they're asking how far from beach, and it will automatically send a response that says, "Hey, we're two blocks from the beach. This is uh-huh. how you get there. Blah blah blah. Uh, how yeah. far? How How far are you? If the, If you start to learn what are the frequently asked questions, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And yeah. you start to populate its autoresponder with answers to those questions. Yeah. It doesn't completely replace all communication, mm-hmm. but it replaces that repetitive stuff that happens with every guest yeah it Um, replaces 80 percent of the questions correct
3: yeah
1: yeah so it makes everything a little bit more smooth and then if for some reason like you know you can't answer right away for whatever like something has happened and you can't answer right away that there's it's probably been answered it gives you a little bit more of like a safety net we just barely got into using it before we sold the house house, shut down i mean we we shut it down before we sold the house because yeah. COVID. COVID.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. and BNB, I think, .io or something. But if you, okay. if you search Smarter and and if you have trouble finding it, reach out to me. I'll, I'll send it to you.
3: Okay. Um, awesome. Thanks. We'll check it out.
0: So let's talk about furnishing uh, yes. these rentals and designing. I have one
1: experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we and, didn't actually do it for.
0: Yeah. So are you... You know, a lot of our our friends that are in this space, you know, will will use Wayfair, and they have mm-hmm. a very, they have a really, you know, they know what they want, you know, they know what bed they're going to get, they know what bed set they're going to. It's very repeatable, and they can just do that. Is that what you're doing, or are you trying with each property to make it a little bit unique?
2: You know, it depends on where we're talking about. If we're talking about Dolphin Island, everyone's unique. And Dolphin Island, just to give you a little context, so we live in South Mobile County, and 40 minutes away from us is this beautiful island called Dauphin Island. And it's 14 miles long, two miles wide. Uh, They have a a section that's just beach. They have a section that's tree. And it's a very uh, diverse island when it comes to what it looks like. So you can go from being only on the beach in two minutes and now you're in like a pine community. And so, when we get into the design of every property owned off an island, they all look different to me because of where they're located. They're not located in the same area, and so, and again, they may be two, two streets over, but it's just such a it's such a different landscape every every street you hit. And so, I, you know, if it were up to like Shane or like a bigger company who's coming in there and just doing like bam, 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 Airbnbs, like, you know, just kind of turning them over super quick. I don't think that that would be the approach, but that's something that I enjoy. And that's one of my passions is to do design. And so when I approach a property for the first time, I really take into consideration like where we are, what are the surroundings? um, Are we on the water? Are we not? Um, And then I really get inspiration from the yard and from, um, yeah, if we're, if we're near the water or like I said, or not. And then I, when I go into the space, every space is different. So is it Morgan, is it going to be coastal style? Is it going to be tropical style? Is it going to be, um, farmhouse style? Cause those, I mean, you really can do a plethora of things down there. Um, and so when it comes to buying the furnishings for that, the, so that kind of speaks for the decor, right? You can just pick whatever decor that goes along with that theme. As far as the actual furniture goes, it is always different because of the space. So, not one living room is the same. So, you can't have just one set of couch that works for every single property. So, um, we do repeat certain, like if we have a a bunk bed that we like, there is one bunk bed on Mayfair that we love. It's a full over full with a trundle, and it ranges anywhere, and that salary ranges anywhere from like five hundred dollars to a thousand dollars. The thousand dollar ones we had to buy one time because it had to be on rush, <laughs> and so not ideal, but. If we like that one style, I will go on Wayfair and buy the beds and know that A, we've used it before. It's good quality. B, we know it can get here within the week. So there are certain things that we repeat when it comes to that because bedding or bedroom furniture is very difficult to buy online.
3: We're a big fan of bunk beds. We yes. try, We put, yeah, we put bunk beds in pretty much every property. Yeah. Kids love them and gets you a lot of beds. You it's know, just
2: kind like- of it's tricky though because some bunk beds are cheaply made, and you yeah. cannot have cheap furniture in an Airbnb, especially one that turns over every week, all day, every day, uh, over the course of the year. So you, we have definitely got we've had issues with beds breaking in the past, just because you buy a cheap bed, you put it in, you don't know what you're doing. You're just trying to save money on it, and now you're double. You know, you could have just bought one nice bed. And, like, yeah, we be just done with it. we just had one break. Yeah, so I'm trying to replace that one and I'm like, do I buy the same one or do I get a nicer one? So, yeah, I, I would say I go to Wayfair for a lot of, I'd say Target is my leading place to get all of my decor from because they do have that beachy style. They have, you know, the rattan and the jute and the, the fabrics, everything that it, what you want to see in an Airbnb on Dolphin Island. But to me, the best place to go for furniture is Wayfair and it's been a trial and error process to figure out what works and what doesn't work. We know what bump beds work because We've had really good success with that. The actual bed is just it's just a different story when it comes to buying online. So there's a furniture store in Mobile that I like to go to called Barrow. It's a family owned company. Another thing that we like to do is put a lot of like local, locally sourced furniture and decor in our properties. And they have it's probably like two times the cost at least to get really nice wood furniture in the properties. So if we're doing a an inexpensive Airbnb, like our fourplex on Daphne Island, they ran out probably the lowest of all of our island properties. I'm probably going to put a Wayfair bed that, you know, probably is only going to last a few years in there. But we're working on a new project right now that's a little bit more high end. I want to put in a nice, solid wood bed I will get sourced from from mobile so yeah when it comes to that it's definitely a case-by-case basis on how the decor goes and how we furnish it so it's easier we have properties in uh, the airbnbs that we're doing in grand bay that i'm furnishing now they're going to have the wayfair beds in there so because that's our lower end yeah. Right? yeah yeah more standard yeah
0: um well here, here's a second question is what about a mattress and bedding
2: the mattress we use from another local, um, a local company. We're friends with the owner.
3: Yeah, they they take really good care of us. Like we call them at three p.m. on a Tuesday. Yeah. He's got bed. He's got mattresses delivered at nine a.m. on Wednesday. I've never really researched the prices, but it seems fair. I mean.
2: I, the thing is, there's there, there's certain costs that you're just going to pay every time. Mattresses are one of them. You're not going to you're not going to find a cheap mattress. You really don't want a cheap mattress. Mm-hmm. Most guys complain about mattress and beds more than anything. Honestly. Yeah,
3: he he delivers it all too. Like it's we may be paying a little bit, but man, the convenience of of being able to call him last second, not having to think. Through I don't even service. call
2: him. I just texting the address and telling him to put it on our account. So, but again, at <laughs> the beginning, that was weeks of me going out into our into mobile trying to find mattresses for a deal. It was a waste of time. You're not going to find a deal. You know, so those things like you learn early on that you do need to have a plan in place to have those repetitive things that you just call up and make happen.
3: For bedding, what do you do? Target?
2: For bedding, everything we do is Target. I tested out sheets from Amazon and from Wayfair. They're pretty much the same. So we we normally just buy in bulk from either of those websites, depending on like the color scheme that I'm doing. And then bedding is mostly all from from Target, a lot from Wayfair too, depending on like they have the Tommy Bahama line that we do a lot in our island properties. So we will splurge a little bit on those types of things. But yeah, I would say Target is my, for sure, like my first place to go get those types of things.
1: They have a really good like variety of styles and things that look nice, but aren't like a ridiculous amount of money. They they definitely know their market. So I could see how that would be a great. Um, resource.
0: Do you tend to try to keep all of the bedding in one house the same? So it's easy to easy for the cleaner to just turn it over. Cause if you get started getting multiple, you know, multiple color sheets, it's like, all right, which sheets go on the double bed, which sheets go on the King, which going on the back bed.
2: That's a really good question. You do have to think about the cleaners when you are decorating, which I we learned the hard way as well. The sheet colors are all the same on all the different sizes. So all of my twin bunk beds have the same color. I try to do a different color for the king, different color for the queen. So every, every size bed has the same color, same sheet. And I buy two of each because... If there is a uh, same day turnaround in one of our properties, and we have issues with getting everything washed and turned over in the same day, we do have backups for that. As far as like she can take the dirty ones out and leave the clean leave the clean ones that we left in the closet. in. so, yeah. um, so I, yeah, it definitely was a, a logistical issue in the beginning, as far as as far as that goes. So something that you would never think about.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, we had to do that with ours. I think I had three sets of everything because. We didn't have washer dryer in the unit, so they had to come into our house. And a lot of times it's it was such a small, you know, just a room and a bathroom basically like standalone. Right. And so I would finish the laundry. Like they would get it, they <clears throat> stick it in there, but then I'm having to do the drying cycle and all that kind of stuff. So it was easy. It, like we had so many extra linens, which was kind of a pain, but also saved. Right. Yeah. It was, it was good. So. It's definitely one of those things that you don't want to cheap out on.
2: (laughs) No, And there's something like, there's some things that you can, you know, save on, but there's some things that you absolutely cannot save on. And that's kind of hard in the beginning when every single detail that you put into the the rental cuts into your margins. Right. So, I mean, you kind of have to like take it with a grain of salt when I say, Oh, I need, you know, this much for a bed. And, and Shane's thinking, well, we budgeted half of that, but I'm like, Sorry, that's
1: that's kind of yeah, yeah. Well, that's probably it. so. That's where you want to spend a lot of your money because people right. are. That's what they're renting typically for is to sleep there. A lot of exactly. times, it's not to yeah. do things there. Where do you find that you can, not go quite as nice? Is there spots in the houses that you feel like are a little bit less important?
2: With- <laughs> Yeah, I would say kitchen for sure. Um, And I wouldn't say like, you can't really, we had an issue a few weeks ago. You can't really go super cheap on kitchen. Kitchen is by far my longest list on my furnishings list because literally, you know, 40 different things that you have, have to find. Some things don't hold up well to time or to uh, the salt air. So we had a lot of rust issues in uh, on our Island properties from the silverware and from like some of our baking pans. I'm like, well, I have rust on that. So it's not an issue, but Airbnb, people they they want to come in they want to cook and they want to have a nice yeah,
3: we, a, we did have a cake complaint the other day about a rusted pan
2: but i mean it's tr- it's true like there's some things and i, I that was one of our first installs, and i got all that from walmart i got literally the cheapest of the cheap mm-hmm. and now i have our assistant go by at least from target if not from bed Bath and beyond and get um like our higher rentals have the, the oxo brand um so i know that's going to stay and so like there's Kitchen overall, yes. I would say you. I, we do shop from Walmart a lot when it comes yeah. to dishes, cups and that kind of thing. You just have to be very careful when you are in those areas and you're trying to say there's just, yeah, it, again, trial and error situation. But yeah. as far as the decor goes there i mean the savings come in when you are a, a diyer i think I and mean, you can source all these like thrift store finds goodwill things to put into your airbnbs which i think is a really great skill i don't have that skill unfortunately the, pro- the problem is doing is a is lot.
3: if you, like, if you yeah. diy thrift shop and goodwill everything like it just it, it starts to look like a hodgepodge mess of yeah. stuff you know? yeah. it doesn't all yeah. match up yeah. and like the thing is is that your gross revenue from airbnbs is so good and it's so high and people when they're deciding on which property to book, they're looking at how you decorated the place. So like having the place decorated where it all matches and it all lines up and everything, Mm -hmm. and they can tell that like you spent time decorating it and you didn't throw together a bunch of goodwill stuff. It pays itself back like instantly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, you don't really try to like cut corners on stuff. It is what it is. We spent a lot of money Decorating our places, but our occupancy rates crush all of our competition. And all of
2: our reviews just rave about those things. The bed was comfortable. You know, the Decorated nice. so nice. Decorated really nice. Yes. And those are things that, you know, you have to have that standard for every level of rentals. You can't just put, you know, all of your eggs in one basket in like a higher luxury rental. You have to have...
3: Yeah, we still do it in our $75. Yeah, in our,
2: because people, if you... If you run a business like we do, your reviews matter and you don't want to have any room for a negative review.
1: We actually, so our property was initially just a guest thing, essentially like a Mm -hmm. guest house for my parents and my mother-in-law actually took me and we went to consignment stores. And so we did sort of do like a thrifting thing, but we did it in a very nice way with like, you know, and so, yeah, you can't, I, I definitely, when I go to Airbnb's, when it's got like a lot of weird, you know, like chachy stuff or things are just it 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 words me out. And I get angry also at kitchens when I'm like, this is clearly from your kitchen and it yeah. was not good enough for yours. And I just put it in <laughs> yeah. there and I can't cook an egg without burning it. <laughs> you know, yeah. and like yeah. Mm-hmm. And so and like some people don't care about that stuff. But right. if you want the people who do and you know you can get that onto a review you know, it's always nice. And um, so that's, you know, when hopefully have our, our property that we're trying to find, that's kind of a place where I will have to find mm-hmm. that. I have to be careful because I like the kitchen a lot, but, <laughs> yeah, um but I, I know that having good basics in there is going right. to be worthwhile.
2: For sure. Yeah. Something that needs to last for a long time. And I, I follow these DIYers on Instagram and they make it look so easy and their homes are beautifully decorated. And it's just such a different skill than like the normal everyday person has. And so I do think that's something that, yeah, you definitely, you you can save so much doing that, but you do have to be aware of how that ends up. It's a
1: time suck, but like you guys have so many properties and you're not there. Mm -hmm. If you've only got one or two and that's something that's Mm important to you or, or interesting to you than, than doing some of those things to make it a little bit more special or, you know, trying to, to, you know, make it be a little bit cheaper, but not in like a cheap way can be nice, but yeah, you've got, you've got 18 Airbnbs like, yeah, (laughs) that's not not worth your time. Um, you can probably, do you guys have any kind of like small thing that you do for all of them? Like some people do like you know, baskets or yeah, we,
3: something like that. We do welcome baskets for each of them. And we try to spend about 10% of the first night's rent on the welcome baskets. So obviously, you know, for a $75 a night place, you know, you're doing something really simple, just maybe like a six pack of, you know, bottled waters or something Some like that.
2: Crackers or something. Um,
3: but we've got a house on the island that we just finished. that's a thousand dollar a night place. And we're doing, a, you know, a bottle of Veuve champagne uh, a six pack of Voss waters, a six pack of Pellegrinos, and then some local chocolates, chocolates from like a local mm-hmm. bakery type place. Yeah. Um, so we do a welcome basket for every place, just in varying degrees of, yeah. of how nice it is.
2: And I think people really enjoy that for when you're checking in and want to see the hospitality side of your Airbnb because. They chose to stay in a home, not a hotel, so you lose a lot of that personal touch when you do that. And so, I feel like with the welcome baskets, that's kind of the main thing because you, you off the bat, you want to make sure your guests yeah, you feel like they're at home.
3: Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So all that stuff like eventually makes its way into a review. Mm-hmm. But everything at the end of the day is all about the reviews.
2: We just had our first guest check in for the the big house on Duffin Island. And we were kind of scrambling last minute to get a welcome basket together because we wanted it to be nice. And we had our assistant pick one up from a local wine and cheese shop. And, you know, we spent quite a bit more than we than we should have. It was more than the 10%. And we got there. They checked in. He ended up being a chef out of Atlanta and was featured on QVC from Recording from our kitchen. Ago? so you could
3: see the welcome basket yeah. in, the, in him filming his QVC show. So I'm glad
2: we splurged on that welcome basket. He definitely appreciated it, it had champagne in it, and everything. You never know who's going to check in, you never know what they're going to say. Or, you know, if that's something that they are interested in, so thank goodness we, we did it nice.
0: <laughs> we interviewed another short term rental operator named Michael Hamilton back on episode 15, wait long, long ago. And one of the things that I think he did really, really well. Uh, And he's out at the Outer Banks, Kill Devil Hills, North Carolina. And his whole thing is he really tried to develop a brand. And he Mm -hmm. even went out. So and I I, I love what you guys mentioned there is you went out and you found some local local suppliers. Mm -hmm. And in his case, I think he even went so far as to like rebrand them under his brand. But I I think it's a really you want it to be unique. Mm -hmm. You know, you want it to be, you know, people are going to. Dolphin Island, Alabama. They're not staying at the Marriott in Orlando,
3: right? Right. Yeah. You know,
0: and so I think if you can differentiate yourself and make it an experience, and and make people feel like they're a local, and that's one of the things that's so wonderful about short-term rentals that you can do. You can create repeat customers, and so Mm -hmm. you can start building that clientele of people. You know, hey, every summer we're going to go to that. Same short-term rental on Dolphin Island, you know, just keep building, building that base and building that base. And, um, and then you're off and running. Do you have what you would consider a standard budget per room?
3: Well, so our standard house is a three, two, and that's costing us about 15,000 to furnish. And that's just our standard run of the mill three, two that has an ARV of let's say 125,000. You know, if, if we have a two, one, I'm trying to get in around ten thousand uh and our two ones are kind of more at around the hundred thousand dollar ARV range we just furnished our high-end property that is a five six uh 4500 square feet and again that's going to be an average nightly rate of about 800 bucks a night year round we spent 52 furnishing that one but again we went super high end on that to kind of like match you know the the property that we' we're, we're going for I and mean, that's a 1.3 million dollar ARV so, I mean, just like our normal run-of-the-mill $125,000 property, we try to get it in under $15,000 and we, we do a pretty good job of it. I always tell Rachel 12 and she turns it into 15. It's
2: my job. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he controls every single, you know, cent that we spend basically. But again, when we first got into this, it looked a little different than it does now, but it is, it is what it is. We do have that budget that we, it kind of set itself, I would say. I, I don't think we set the budget to begin with. I think we got an idea of what, Furnishing, right, and and so it just depends on again, like where you shop and the quality. But yeah, he knows he knows every single cent that I have spent on every property, which is very important when you go to the next property, um, and it is based on bedroom size. I think you can buy a variation of all of the furnishings and it's still going to come out to be about that same price.
3: Yeah, and then and then in my pro forma when I'm analyzing a property, I depreciate that original furniture purchase over a 5-year schedule. So I depreciate that over 60 months. So like for example, if it's 15 grand, I put $250 a month in a furniture depreciation schedule in my pro forma. Gotcha.
0: So no you so, that means. <laughs> for for our listeners who don't understand what you just said, can you put that into English?
3: Yeah, like when I'm calculating like net cash flow, like I count the furniture that we buy on the front end, I calculate that as like a $250 monthly expense. And then the other thing that that in, uh, enables is it also enables like if you're going to hold the property for 20 years, it gives you room to replace the furniture over a time yeah. as well. So the original amount You know, gets gets counted as two hundred and fifty dollars a month. But also, when that five year runs out, you're already accounting for like, hey, we're probably going to spend about two hundred and fifty dollars a month replacing the original furniture that we bought. Got it.
0: The IRS is basically saying you can depreciate. You're basically going to be able to recapture a lot of this money in a accelerated time frame. Got it. -hmm. Correct. Okay. Okay.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's for taxes, but it's also just for me analyzing cash flow as well. You know, like when I'm analyzing cash flow. For a long-term rental, obviously, there's no furniture expense. So to be able to compare apples to apples when I'm comparing cash flow, you have to put something in there for furniture.
2: And I think it takes away that from the emotional aspect of getting attached to a property because when we first did our, our first view, I was like, Oh, I don't want this couch to be ruined. I don't want you know something to happen to this furniture. This is my stuff. It's not your stuff it can be replaced. We have a budget for replacing things. So um, as long as you don't put like a family heirloom into an Airbnb rental um, or things that are of value to you, then those are just numbers in Shane's head. So
3: yeah, we, we Scotch guard, you know, all of our rugs and all of our couches and and everything else, but inevitably like you're going to have to replace this stuff. But again, like the revenue from these Airbnbs just absolutely destroys the revenue from long-term rentals. You have plenty of room to be replacing Mm -hmm. furniture.
0: Yeah. What kind of amenities do you think give you the biggest return on investment?
3: That's a great question. (laughs) I think location matters. uh, And I think that's like the most like top of my brain uh, answer. the problem with location is like you pay for it in the cost of the property. You know, so like, yeah, like if you're closer to the beach, you're gonna be able to charge a higher nightly rate, but the closer you are to the beach, the more expensive the property costs. Mm -hmm. So I think if you take that out of the equation, I think just going nice on your rehab, you know, like if you buy a property that has a lot of deferred maintenance and you try to do your rehab cheap, and you know then you listed on Airbnb people aren't going to be drawn to that property and where you're going to see it is not only in your nightly rate but it's in your occupancy rate right you know occupancy rates in south alabama average about 60% we're hitting about 70 we hit 71% on our occupancy last year and like you're talking about earlier with the recurring customers people coming back i see our occupancy going up you know given that we're so new at this like i think our occupancy is going to go up not down and the thing is, is like, if you're able to hit 72% or whatever in an occupancy compared to like 50% on a non rehabbed property, you throw those into a calculator, like you're paying for your rehab in a year, you know, like it's so worth it to spend nice. Like we bought this one uh, fourplex out of foreclosure on the Island and we did shiplap on every single wall. It was like, your dad told us it was like 30,000 linear feet of shiplap or something. He wasn't we,
2: happy about having
3: to do it. Either. Yeah, we spent, like, we spent like 50 grand on shiplopping this entire property, every single wall of every single unit. But that's what people talk about in our reviews. And that's why our occupancy rate is so high for this property. You know, like we, we talked to other Airbnb homeowners on Dolphin Island that haven't rented their properties and we like, they'll tell us like, oh, we have a 3-2. It does, you know, 21,000 a year in gross revenue. And like, we have a little tiny 2-1 that's nowhere near the beach that's doing 32 grand a year yeah, in revenue, you know, and it's because of how we do our rehabs. I think the other thing is pictures, yeah. you know, like we recently looked at a property and immediately uh, looked at a property to buy and immediately I went on and like looked at our competitors uh, near there for their Airbnbs. And like, they've got all these like dark photos and their properties are not rehabbed and stuff. I'm telling Rachel, I'm like, we're going to crush these people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So like, it's all about like the pictures that you take, you know, like make your place look like a place that people want to stay at. Like, don't be taking a picture with no flash on your phone, you know, like with the lights off at 7pm at night.
1: Do you have someone come in and do that for you guys?
3: Rachel is a photographer. So she does. Yeah
2: we talk about this all the time that we are lucky to have like him on the finance side of me on the design side. Cause I do the photos, I do the writing for that Airbnb website and our website and um, that the marketing and the styling, those are the two things that sell your property. I know the rehab is on the back end side is very important as well, but the finishes and how you promote your property, you have one, one chance to grab that, Attention. Attention of the guests yeah, they're, they're
3: looking at they're not looking properties. at what's
2: in your cabinets and what type of um, no. you know water kitchen toys ones. kitchen appliances you have they're looking at oh what is this space how does a space make you feel mm-hmm. and so if you can capture that with your furnishings and your photos and the description of your property that's what sells it. Uh, and then once they get in, you know, obviously you want to maintain that type of um, that standard with uh, having a nice place. So, um, you know, there's kind of two sides to it. But I think the most important thing is the marketing and how your place looks up front.
0: What I find I mean, even myself as a consumer, when I'm looking at an, Air, at an Airbnb, the photos is the first thing you look at. You are not you don't look right. at the description, so, you know, <laughs> you know, and even our experience when we had, you know, we would have all these explanations about what it had in the description. And we would still constantly get people asking, do you guys have this? Do you guys have this? Do you guys have this? And finally, what I started doing is taking, just taking pictures of it.
2: That's true. Right. (laughs) Open the cabinets.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And so they could see it. And then those questions went down a little bit because people just half the time, people just looking through through the pictures and, you know, you are, it's a, especially in a crowded market, you know, and a Mm -hmm. lot of these, especially if you're in a vacation rental market, you're competing against lot of other places and you don't want to compete on price. Right. Uh, You know, that's a, that's the road to ruin. And the other thing that you need to keep in your mind is that when people are coming to stay with you, this may be the only vacation they get that year. Mm -hmm.
2: Right. Mm Right.
0: And so if you make it bad, then they're going to resent it and they're going to let people know. And
2: yeah. they will let people know. People love to share their opinion, which we are glad our business is based on reviews. So, yes yeah, it's just something that you definitely have to uh, invest sometimes, in. Buddy.
3: Sometimes though you get these reviews, like like you get like a three-star review and the review starts out like everything was perfect in the property. It was beautifully <laughs> decorated. And then the last sentence is like, but it rained our entire vacation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like... Have to comment under them, you know, because the nice thing about when they give a review like that is you have like the last, you know, last reply, you know, like you always like comment to like their like you know like Mm -hmm. to their review or whatever. Like, oh, I'm really sorry the weather was bad, you know, like hope hope to host, (laughs) yeah, yeah, hope to host you. They they
1: they were giving a review on the trip, not on the Airbnb. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Yeah,
2: Yeah.
1: yeah, that's. Yeah. Yeah. I was like on Amazon when I'm like, I'll be like, why does this have like these one star reviews? And essentially that like people just don't look at what they're actually buying yeah. and they've gotten the wrong thing. Like, yeah. I'm like <laughs> you
3: know, it is,
0: it is one of the drawbacks of the, I don't know what you'd call it. The, the rating, the, the rating economy. You yeah. Know, yeah. Uh, yeah. That sometimes you just get people who, Who are just miserable and they're never, nothing's ever right. And you know, you want to tell
1: someone that something went bad, and the (laughs) only place they can do it is on your Airbnb review. Yeah. It rained.
0: Okay, that was Shane and Rachel Sigsby. We had, we had some technical difficulties at the end. This interview with Shane has been sort of cursed. It's the second time we've recorded it. Uh, and both times had been really, really great interviews. And uh, the first time my audio got completely corrupted and we had to re-record this interview. And then right here at the end, we lost power right as we were sort of wrapping up and saying goodbye, but um, yeah, we didn't lose this one
1: though. We so. didn't lose
0: this one though. So, uh, and it was still a really great interview. Did you have a key lesson learned from this interview?
1: Yeah, I think something that stuck out to me that Rachel said when she was talking about furnishing the rentals, you know, listings and and, you know, taking good pictures and that kind of thing is she she said that people when when they look through those, they're really asking themselves, how does this make me feel? And so, you know, they're not necessarily they might put in the parameters of like three bedroom or whatever, you know, that kind of things initially for Airbnb to filter out. But once they have those pieces, they're really looking to see, you know, what that rental feels like for them. And so, you know, we talked about how important it was to furnish well, you know, without within guidelines, depending on the price of the the rent per night, that kind of thing, but um, how nice of a rental it is and such, but really creating a space that does make people go, Ooh, that would make me feel good is a really important part of having a successful vacation rental.
0: Well, and Shane even talked about, you know, when you're looking at rehabbing that you want to rehab to a level that makes it look nice. You know, you're Mm -hmm. not going to rehab like it's going to be a long-term rental. You want to rehab with it looking desirable in mind and the return on investment will more than make up for it. You know, he talked, he talked about being able to return the price of a rehab in one season. And so your, your ROI on that is very, is very important and very powerful. And a big thing to keep in mind when you're, when you're trying to rehab a potential short-term rental and furnish it.
1: All right. So how did Shane specifically, educate himself in order to get this started.
0: This is sort of a book broken record, bigger pockets. Uh, <laughs> you know, he, he said he had probably listened to every bigger pockets episode there is. Uh, he also spent a lot of time messing around with the bigger pockets rental property calculator tool, which I highly recommend if someone, you know, that's a question I frequently ask someone when they're saying, well, you know, you know, I still don't have a deal yet. You know, uh, I'll ask them well how many deals you are you how many deals are you looking at mm-hmm. well you know none um, you need to be looking at deals you need to be looking at Zillow and just plug just plug properties into the rental property calculator and and mess around with it and figure out what you know what a good number looks like because every property, this is one of one of my favorite, and I can't remember the exact quote, but every property has its right price mm-hmm. that will make it profitable, and that's sort of what you need to learn to get a feel for. Practice uh,
1: makes perfect. Yes.
0: Money. Their first property, uh, was he purchased it for $38,500, mm-hmm. and it took them about $11,500 to rehab it, so they were all in for about $50,000. It's praise for, I think he said $97,000, $90,000. That's a really, really great burr. They're a little harder to find now that they're, it's a little hard to find them that good nowadays, but it is still possible if you find the right property.
1: So time is where we really got cut off. And depending on what our editor does, I have no idea (laughs) (laughs) how much you'll get of that. But essentially it's a full-time job was what I was sort of hearing it. This is a business for them. They spend Or maybe not a full-time job, but they spend a lot of time on it. It is an active investing strategy. It is not a semi-passive. It's, it's something that you do have to manage.
0: No, we, and we've, we've interviewed enough short-term rental operators, uh, even the ones that have really systematized it well. uh, They all say it's, it's a job. Uh, It's a very rewarding job and you can make a lot of money doing it, but it's very much a job. Yeah. Location.
1: Very location independent. <laughs> um, yep. Obviously, they are their rentals are in Alabama. They live here in Las Vegas and they do have family there. So that's like made it easier for them. But theoretically, the you know, if you have the right market and the people in place, you can you can have vacation rentals. No matter where you live. And if you have the systems in place, you can go on trips and things you just have to have that management. And so yeah. if you're not doing the management, you're going to have to pay for the management.
0: Yeah. And they, they mentioned they now have an assistant who, uh, is helping to deal with a lot of the guest communication and stuff like that. Yeah. And we, of course we, hopefully they will, uh, things will improve a little bit if they, uh, end up signing up for smarter BNB, uh, which we recommend, but, yeah. um, okay. Once again, that was Shane and Rachel Sigsby. And uh, we certainly appreciate their time. We'll we'll have uh, links in the show notes for how to reach out to them. We're doing this all again next week. Let's hit the road. Bye. Hey, before you go, if you like the show, we would be delighted if you'd head over to Podchaser and leave us an honest review. And do let us know why you like the show, how long you've been listening, and in particular, what you find really useful or entertaining. And let us know if there's anything you think we should change. Also, if you have specific questions about real estate investing, especially self-storage or short-term rentals, shoot us an email at info at road to family and we'll be happy to answer your question on the show. We might even turn it into an entire episode thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels on your road to financial freedom.